Hiatusing. It's an it's a verb. What were you doing for two months? Sleeping. So I was hiatusing and you were sleeping. Yeah. How are you, Kate? Other than uh, very awake because all you've been doing is sleeping for the last two months. Well, I got up. I had breakfast. I'm working on another podcast at the moment. Cheat on me. <laughs> Hold on. This is how you tell me. <laughs> Holly, I have another podcast. What is it? It's for Balance Garden. Oh, I knew about this. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Balance Garden, uh, the episode of which you will have already heard if you are a diversified listener. And I just talked to people about the meltdowns they had before they were 30 and how they coped with it and how they found balance again. By the time this comes out, I'll probably be 30, so if you never hear from me again, this will be my last rodeo. Well, I'm just assuming that when you turn 30, someone comes and picks you up in a white van and carries you away and you never... See you again. Or that's only if you're a woman in uh, in the entertainment industry. <laughs> <laughs> or all of your anxieties, fears, and insecurities disappear, and you're just fine for the rest of your life. Illustrious guest of ours, are you over thirty? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, you're not supposed to ask someone their age, but we can ask you a bracket. What was thirty like for you? It's really interesting because I think people do come for you in a white van and you're absolutely, like, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and all your angst and anxiety, well, I won't say it goes, but it changes. So you're more settled, kind of get to the point in your life where you realise that you're on a trajectory and it's at that point when you're over 30 that you realise that it, either you do something about it now or, or that's it, you know, that's your life, that's your life's path. Although the angst of your 20s is gone, in your 30s there's more of a kind of, it's like a kind of mundane acceptance <laughs> which is a bit oh, I'd say that the angst is better than the realisation that actually this is it <laughs> to be fair mundane acceptance is not something that I'm famed for so a little bit of that might actually be <laughs> yeah. good for me yeah. less anger and fire so it's, it's almost like these are the things I've chosen I either make them work or nothing yeah you, you suddenly realize all the things you're not going to be you spend so much of your life in angst about what you want to be and what you could be and then you hit 35 like i am now and you go oh god this is it this is this is the path i've chosen either accept it or spend years battling it in inside i think that's the thing i've spent a lot of time over the last few years on the countdown to 30 going but i could also do more of this and more of this and more of this and then suddenly you're doing 18 different exactly. things not as well my entire professional career has been me doing too many things not quite as well as I could have been if I had just done two yeah I agree um but uh it's not all downhill (laughs) um illustrious over 30 guest who are you uh my name is Amelia Amelia Twine and I'm here today on behalf of the brand Give Where Love and what is that brand uh that brand is an online store for sustainable and ethical fashion. 
Hello Diversifiers, it's Holly here, interrupting with what's starting to feel like the obligatory season 3 disclaimer for nearly every episode. This episode was recorded before the pandemic, so whilst it might be kind of refreshing to not have us go on about it, there are a couple of things you should know. Unfortunately, as with many businesses, Give Wear Love had to close its online doors during the coronavirus outbreak and is no longer functioning as an online store. However, Amelia is still doing unbelievable work, notably pushing ahead with big plans for the UK's Sustainable Fashion Week, which I believe will take place in early 2021. Head to sustainablefashionweek.uk for that. She's also got loads of fantastic facts and opinions on how to be a better consumer, so keep listening because I learned loads and I'm sure you will too. And by loads, I really mean loads. Seriously, it's not often a meat eater can give a vegan lessons on ethical eating, but she did, and she's amazing. So, back to pre-pandemic us. <sighs> Those were the days. So, did you start off working in fashion? Did you train in fashion? Um, the complete opposite. I have like no background in fashion whatsoever, but I do have a background in sustainability. So I grew up on an organic farm and off the back of that I spent a lot of time, when I was beginning my career, I was looking at how I could support a sustainable future through my career. And I was trying to find the right path and what felt right. So um, I sort of did a lot of work in different NGOs, working in different areas, whether it was conservation or sustainability, etc. But then found myself sort of almost inevitably working in food, having come off a farm and then ended up sort of accidentally working in hospitality. As we all do. Yeah, as we all do, yeah. There's a lot of actors that ended up accidentally <laughs> yeah. becoming the CEO of like a hospitality Yeah, it was, um, I never meant it to happen, but I ended up starting this uh, large scale pop-up restaurant event. And um, what was it called? It was called Eat, Drink, Bristol Fashion. Sounds very Bristol. It was very Bristol, yeah. It was <laughs> Clearly it was at least. And it was great. It was it was huge. And right in the centre of Bristol, and we were showcasing local food and kind of promoting the benefits of local food systems. And um, we ran that event for four years. And then off the back of that, opened a cafe and then a restaurant. So suddenly, from having no experience in hospitality, apart from doing waitressing as a kid, I was the co-owner and sort of ops director of a business that owned two restaurants. It was completely bizarre. Are the restaurants still there? They are. What are they called? One's called Root, which is a, it's not vegetarian, but it's veg-led small place restaurant in Bristol, um, which has got a big gourmand and is doing really well. The chef's amazing and the food is incredible. And the other is a cafe called Yurt Lush, which is a it's a sort of pun on a Bristol saying. Is it sustainable farming that they're using those restaurants? I really push that agenda. So for me, I wasn't as much interested in what the food we were producing was, but I wouldn't have continued working with the company if we hadn't had that as a really core part of our agenda. So through that, for three years, I was on the board of the Sustainable Restaurant Association, which was every time I attended one of the meetings, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing here because I'm not knowledgeable like the rest of them. But um, everything I've ever done in my career has always been looking at an industry or a situation and pushing a sustainable future through that as much as I could. Before we move on to fashion and clothes, which I'm very excited to talk about, (laughs) did you use meat in said restaurants? So Root, the reason why I love Root is because I'm not a vegetarian or a vegan, but I believed if everyone ate meat the way I do, then we wouldn't have a problem. I think vegans are brilliant. Um, We are. You are, I know, yeah. Um, 
But I think, um, <laughs> basically, yeah, if we all change our attitude to meat, I think the world could be radically different. I don't think you have to be vegan, basically, to make a huge difference on the planet through your diet. I, with my very uneducated wealth of knowledge, decided that I was going to coin a phrase called binitarian. And at some point, when I was trying to get people to latch onto it, the term flexitarian apparently just arrived. So I tried and failed. There is another one as well from people who do only eat bin diving or something. Yeah, bin diving, binitarian. So if it's going in the bin anyway, I'll yeah. have it. Yeah. But I'll never buy it or contribute to the supply and demand. Or if I do, I'll check where it's from. Well, I went through a stage of mine becoming a vegan where if somebody just didn't have something that I could have or hadn't really been told then I'd just eat it when it was there because it had already been made. Yeah. I am not like that now. And She got me to clean a butter knife earlier. <laughs> well, yeah, I wasn't going to... You don't want to put the butter knife in my specifically free-from pesto. Um, yeah, now I'm like... She's one of those. <laughs> so there are some restaurants that, like, they don't have a single vegan thing, but if you took the egg out of it or the cheese off it, it would be vegan. What you're saying is if I paid the same amount for less then you could make something vegan with less cruelty in it so i just won't do it now if you if you can't be bothered to cater for me then why why should i bother paying you 12 pounds for food but i did used to go through a phase where and i've got friends who if it's there and it's already been made then they'll eat it which i think is fine it's just i think for me it forces people to be more aware of vegans when they go i didn't make anything for you and you didn't eat Oh, well, next time yeah. I'll make it for you. It takes all sorts, doesn't it? Yeah. I think, um, I mean, what I've always pushed as well, because I'm, um, I mean, I'm married, my husband's an organic beef farmer, but what's interesting is we're not very meaty at all, so we eat probably once a week maximum, and we only ever eat it organic and preferably locally pasture-reared. The big thing is differentiating between good farming and bad farming, So, which is why I've never felt, I'm personally, I've always felt comfortable with my food choices and never felt I needed to become vegan or vegetarian. But um, I think it's really key that we, and what veganism has done, the sort of vegan rhetoric that's been kind of getting bigger and bigger and bigger and that dialogue's growing and growing. What's so brilliant is it's starting to get this conversation out there about the way we farm, which is good, you know, in, in red commas, and the way we farm, which is bad. And that's something that the people that I've grown up with have tried to do for sort of 30 years, you know, trying to sort of differentiate between good and bad farming and, and the impact it has in different ways. But also um, I think a lot of people think they're buying from good farms because they have a stamp on to say it's free range. And then when you actually show them what the chickens look like in the free range egg farm, they're disgusting. And I did some filming in, an, in a chicken farm. God, they were amazing. They had like the chicken coops, but they were just allowed to go in this massive field. Mm. We were just like, if this is what free range egg farming looked like, I mean, I, I still would be a vegan, but I would be much more likely to be like, yeah, everyone eat eggs. Yeah. You know, if you have your own chicken out in the back garden, then yeah. Bye, George. You fry that chicken period and you enjoy that chicken period. Yeah. <laughs> but it is a chicken period. But I think I used to buy loads of free range eggs i stopped i stopped buying caged eggs literally years ago years before i went vegan i don't think i knew that a lot of those free range eggs were still treated horrendously i, I think free range is really misleading yeah i think free, free range i don't think i think basically you just have to go organic with all dairy or meat if you're not going to eat organic meat or dairy just don't eat it as far as i'm concerned because i think free range it's really misleading and there are stamps not organic stamps but are more talking about animal welfare and free range which should 
as far as I'm concerned, just meaningless, you know, because the standards are so low for what they constitute as free range that it's not really at all. Let's talk about your yeah. clothes. Yeah. How did you end up there? Through working in food for so long and um, through feeling so passionately, as, as you can tell, about food and how it's farmed and, and how we all consume food. Firstly, I was sort of needed to change. I worked in food for ages. I ended up running restaurants um, having never intended to do that. And I thought, what can I do next? And I started looking at my consumption and I felt sort of, you know, very smugly, like my energy provides great. I think, my, I personally, I think my diet is good in terms of the balance and, you know, blah, blah, blah. The list went on and I felt like I did quite well in terms of a lot of my consumption and the choices I was making. But then I looked at fashion and I was like, I'm not a massive clothes buyer. I don't buy clothes that often, but I did buy primarily from H&M. And I chose to do that actively because they were one of the biggest buyers of organic cotton. They're pretty um, good, aren't they? But it's, they are within the context of a massive chain so they're doing loads and they have been for years, and which is why I thought, well, if I'm going to shop anywhere, I'm going to shop there because what they're doing is contributing to an increase in conversion from conventional cotton to organic cotton. Aren't they the ones as well who they did that huge thing where you could just bring in old clothes and some of them, yes. they didn't even have to be wearable. If they were wearable, they'd give them to charity. If they weren't wearable, they'd just mush them up and yeah. reuse them. And all their makeup's feeding that thing. So they're doing, they're doing loads of good things, but it's always, I think, my personal view... When you get to a certain scale, it becomes really difficult to stay like really sustainable. And also, if you've got a conscious range, what's that saying about the rest of your clothing? You know, uh, that reminds me yeah. of being. I was at primary school, and we were making like a time capsule. And I, at the age of like eight or something, put in a, an empty body shop bottle, and we had to write down the reasons. And the teacher came up to me with my writing and was like, "What do you mean by it shows that we care?" I was like, "Cause it's the body shop." And they care. And the teacher had to sit me down and be like, now, all of these people are arseholes. These guys are a tiny bit less of an arsehole. That doesn't make them good. Mm. <laughs> so it's quite a pivotal moment yeah. for young Kate. <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. It's quite interesting with uh, the conversations that are going around, in, particularly in America at the moment, with the Democratic primaries. Bernie Sanders I, has an incredible quote that was like, because you know when the banks collapsed, it was like they're called too big to fail, where it means that we have to bail them out because our entire economy is so tied up with these big conglomerate corporations and banks and lawyers and whatever, we can't actually let them fail. So it actually would cost us more money if we didn't bail them out. And Bernie Sanders was like, if they are too big to fail, they're too big to exist. And that's the problem yeah, absolutely, with fully yeah. free market capitalism that... America is currently desperately trying to not rein in on certain aspects is that when something becomes so big it cannot maintain the level of ethics we need. We're all so obsessed with growth but when you actually go why is growth good it, we don't really have an answer no, other than exactly. getting bigger is good but yeah. why is it good because people are still poor people are still having mental health problems why can't we just stop? It's not like we're going to create more world, is it? There's a finite amount of space for all these companies in the world, right? If you make more money, it's going to be worth less. So why? This well, is my so question. Who are you making the money for? So the more billionaires you have, that means that that money that is making them billionaires isn't being spent. So it's stagnating. It's sat in a bank. Yeah, there's mm. no such thing as an ethical billionaire, apart from Bill Gates, who is desperately trying to not be a billionaire. <laughs> He's given it away, but you can't give it up fast enough. Maybe yeah. I should send him a letter and ask him yeah. to finance my next show. <laughs> yeah. 
the, we always like the bigger a company gets, the lower the standards we hold them to. Because yeah. we're like, isn't it great? H&M are doing that. And it's like, exactly, yeah. Cool, but this little company literally has a carbon net zero. Right? Yeah. And you'll still, but I mean, from the, the the synthetic fabrics that they're producing at low cost that we, you know, wash a few times, the microplastics end up in the oceans and then in our food. And then that item will get worn a few times. Uh, it'll be, you know, it won't be high enough quality to continue to wear for a long time so then it goes in landfill um i almost don't want to sort of name and shame them too much because i think they are really trying h&m but i just think until you have a radical overhaul of your whole production story and there's transparency at every single point and someone can look at it and go that's as good as it can be that's as good as it can be all the way along you know it's not good enough essentially well it's like what happened with iceland it's amazing that they're no longer using palm oil and all their products and then you're like Oh, but that's only their products. It's not like they went to, like, Bird's Eye or whatever and went, oh, unless you take it out, we're not going to stop your product. Are they going far enough? Mm. Well, it's just like one man saying he's not going to catcall anymore. It's not going to make a huge difference to the world unless everyone does it. Yeah. We don't need, like, one person doing ethics perfectly. We need everybody doing Doing ethics imperfectly. Yeah, exactly. And actually, I have made, just the act of being vegan has made had huge differences to loads of people that I'm friends with. But the reason I'm vegan will have been, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants, people who've been vegan 10 years before me. Hey, I've been drinking non-milk milk since I was 15, so I think you still have a little while to catch up. Mate, me too. Okay, fine. (laughs) I went soy, I went soy, ah, you can't bring your milk. I went soy when I was 16, so uh, I haven't drunk, I haven't drunk milk for... I still got like three years on you then. Fine. <laughs> um, so, where do you get your clothes from? The company's basically, I feel like it's all very new. So, we're still in our fledgling phase, and I wanted to start with really established brands specifically because of that uh, that thing about transparency. I wanted to go with the brands that I knew had been operating for quite a good length of time and had really good supply chains that I could have confidence in selling on. So, I've gone to some uh, of the core UK brands, such as People Tree, Thought, Komodo, and selected pieces from their ranges for each season to style together and make a seasonal edit. I was looking at the website the other day everything looks so nice oh good so the company doesn't make its own clothes it collates ethical brands together yes exactly yeah so when I was looking at you know what I wanted to do for a change and what I could do and looked at my consumption I was like right what I need to change in my consumption is the fashion I buy so I started looking online and I couldn't easily find somewhere where I could go and get something that I felt was stylish so I could go to the brands themselves but of their ranges I might only like two or three things and I thought god I just want to go somewhere which is my style where I can just go and find sustainable style not just sustainable clothing because you've I mean we've had sustainable brands for years and they've done loads and loads and loads of organic cotton basics which are great and really useful but we all wear more than just organic cotton basics we started this conversation with us being like when you're 30 this happens and then you're like well kind of like when you're between 30 and 35 you just have to be like well this is my life now nothing's going to change and then within five ten minutes you've been like oh apart from that time where I completely <laughs> yeah. changed career direction and now I run a fashion brand yeah, yeah. but yeah just that sort of attitude I just find really inspiring just being like okay I'm gonna do it can you tell us for those of our listeners that might not have researched this very much what the impact that the fashion industry is having on 
environmental issues and the conditions of the workers. For me, okay, I'll start with, I'll try and be as brief as possible, but because of my background in food, for me it starts with the land and the soil. So soil damage is relevant in fashion as it is in food because, you know, so many of the natural crops like cotton, for example, obviously, and linen, everything's grown from the soil up. So if you're growing it with high levels of pesticides and insecticides, it's going to have the same impact. Um, I always like to say, you are wearing the land on your back. So, you know, wear it well. Whether you're wearing polyester, which is made out of crude oil, or you're wearing cotton, which is grown, it's literally the land. Do we make cotton in this country? I don't think so. No, it's not the right climate. America, India is a massive producer, mm. I think. The yeah. amount of water that is used up, how do you manage to make that sustainable? Um, organic. Organic. Organic, organic, organic. Yeah, organic cotton, I believe it uses 91% less water than conventional cotton. I don't think I realised that like organic was necessarily a huge amount more ethical. Most think of health, doesn't it? it? Think Everyone health. thinks of health, but they don't think of welfare and environment. Yeah, because yeah. I'll be honest, it doesn't really bother me if I'm eating non-GMO food. Having I'm just jumping, this is one of my favourite arguments, but as a vegan, GM and non-organic stuff has a huge impact on wildlife and biodiversity so as someone who cares about animal welfare it's an interesting one because obviously we all care about the big animals and the big ones are the guys that we see and they're also cuddly and lovely but the amount of uh, wildlife loss due to non-organic farming okay. is so when I, I have lots of friends who are vegan but I always say to them if you're not buying organic veg and fruit along with not eating meat then actually you're sort of undermining your own argument um, I certainly one of the things that I'm looking into there's a thing called odd box yeah. where you get um, they deliver a certain amount of fruit and veg to you but they're all the ones that are like weird shapes yeah. that don't make it. Because the amount of shit we just throw away. I know. Yeah, um, it's unbelievable. And I'm getting really stressed out by plastics at the moment. So it's definitely a thing to look into to be like, even within our ethical framework, how do we then make it even better? Less plastic, less non-organic stuff. And then how do we afford it? Yeah, yeah. Um, what well, we really need question, is the yeah. government to be like, we need to make this illegal and this illegal exactly, and this illegal exactly, and it will yeah. force everybody to change because it will force people who eat awful meat they just won't be able to eat meat anymore so they'll have to subsidize vegetables and if they've also made fruit and vegetables that are creating loads of damage high tax then we can't afford them so all of a sudden organic stuff becomes cheaper because it's subsidized yeah yeah this is the same with um the conversations that we've been having with extinction rebellion recently mm. as well so you can do as much as you can from where you are but when it comes down to it, it's all about yes. government policy. Yeah. yeah, I completely agree. Systemic change. Generally, intervention from a top level, it's always a bit dodgy because it's like who is who is in charge and who is going to do the intervening. But I think where we are now, that's what we need. Is we need people to intervene and say, like when when uh, when I find that plastics, you know, some of the plastics that are in packaging are recyclable and some are not. I'm like, well, how is it legal to produce non-recyclable plastic packaging? How is that allowed? That should be where we just where we have intervention right at the top, where they just say if it's not recyclable, it doesn't get produced. But in order to do that, um, my mate who's in Extinction Rebellion was explaining to me even recyclable plastic often doesn't get recycled because depending on what borough you're in, depending on what yeah. your council is, yeah. because Maggie Thatcher took away the umbrella way of dealing with councils, everything has its own separate way of working and they have their own separate deals with different companies. So actually, where I live in Newham, I was told the best thing for me to do is to not wash my plastics and to just dump them with everything else in a landfill because we can't recycle them and at least if the plastic is soiled then all the kind of like decomposition of yeah, the soil yeah. makes it 
degrade quicker. Degrade quicker. Yeah. Whereas what I've been doing, I mean, I make eco bricks, so I put them in a bottle and then I'm going to make a <laughs> But in general, if that bottle ends up in the sea, at least it's a bottle that ends up in the mm. sea. What the fuck is an eco brick? I'll put it on the nose, but you put all your plastic into a plastic bottle and you can make like a room full of plastic fit into like a one litre bottle. I'll show you some. But yeah, in general, so many things in between have to change. Otherwise, we're just like, well, all the plastic's recyclable, but you one can't <laughs> recycle it. Or Tunbridge Wells can't recycle it. So in terms of the land, let's see if I can pull out anything which is interesting and good. Um, basically, there are kind of a few key areas to try and summarise, basically, we have um, habitat and biodiversity loss, which, again, is back to the land. It's about how things are grown, how we are extracting materials that we're then going to turn from fibres to fabrics to clothing. There's pollution on a you know grand scale and in different contexts. CO2 is the big one. And we know that in 2015, greenhouse gas emissions from textiles production totaled 1.2 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent. That's more than all of flights and maritime shipping combined. So the amount of CO2 that's being released just down to fashion and textiles is enormous. There's pollution in terms of waterways, both in the sense of microplastics coming off synthetic fibres and in terms of chemical inputs that get used to either grow a fibre or in terms of changing it from a fibre to a fabric. We have pollution in terms of non-degradable oil-based fibres that just don't degrade, basically. They take like 200 years to degrade. Landfill is a massive problem and we are burying like millions of tonnes of clothing every year. There's pollution in water. It just goes on and on, basically. So at the moment, every, everything that's going on at the moment, in terms of scale, is just going to get worse and worse and worse. The UK is really bad. In terms of our consumption of fast fashion, the UK is particularly bad. I think um, consumer capitalism has a lot to answer for, and this pressure to buy and have and buy and have and buy and have is just... I don't think it's going to last, but what frightens me is what's going to come next. Like, I don't think it's going to be a return to healthier and more considered ways of living. I think it's going to be replaced by some other form of capitalism, which is perhaps more sinister. It is more, more stats. Yeah. More stats. <laughs> well, on that theme, let's stick with you know, the horrific experience of the workers in the fashion and textile industry. Um, amazing um, stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yay! There are millions and millions of people involved in the supply chain. And as a general picture, it's not pretty. People are more often than not not paid a living wage. Also, we see loads of modern slavery in textile production, which can be sort of found in various forms in the different ways of producing fibres and fabrics. Lots of people are displaced by the pollution that I was sort of talking about earlier. And often, as we know from the Rana Plaza collapse in 2013, uh, work in really unsafe environments. The environment that they're working in, although obviously that was one horrific tragedy, there were other horrific tragedies that just don't get reported because they're smaller or more commonplace. But... People that live in those factories, isn't there? Yeah, I imagine there's, I mean, there's so much in terms of uh, harassment, poor health, there's so much going on within these buildings which these people are working in. What benefited the world by the Rana Plaza tragedy is that we woke up to what was going on and how that directly linked to us. The rhetoric is really annoying because we call all these things like tragedies and like every time there's a mass shooting in America it's a tragedy and it's like, well, to me, when I think of a tragedy, it almost conjures up the idea that it couldn't be avoided. And I'm like, this wasn't a tragedy, this was like... We did this. Man yeah. slaughtered by apathy. Yes. And it's the yes, same thing. Absolutely. Grenfell was yeah. not a tragedy. Grenfell was the council 
who wanted to cut so many costs that they put the lives of hundreds and actually tens of thousands because I lived in Camden in a high rise they had to evacuate everybody when Grenfell happened because it was the same kind of cladding yeah these are things that we are just not doing anything to solve on a wider scale I made a comment about pollution the other day to a person and he went off on one about how you know we can't go and have another bloody British empire and just tell all the countries to do what we say because we know we're right and I was like oh we jumped the gun a bit there but fine and he was arguing that you know a lot of the countries responsible for the most pollution in the world are places like India and China and we can't tell them what to do because they're growing and they don't want to stop and then I was going are you hang on you're blaming India and China for this we did this like these are our clothes like, and it's oh it's just a disaster really I don't like this idea of like a giant dictatorship where there is like the king of and queen of the not, world. That's not what I was saying. No, <laughs> no, but it does. But actually, if you take what I think we all need to do, which is everybody does need to work together and have some rules that everybody has to abide yeah, by. Yeah, that's what which I said. Which is sort of what the UN is. But the thing is, if that's what I said, is the exact conversation but, that I had around this. Because the UN, it's like that's against the rules, and then what? Like Donald Trump's like, yeah. Russia's like, I'm still in Ukraine, so, (laughs) and part of me is like, well, there has to be some consequences, but actually you can't have one man or woman who dishes out the consequences for everything because you literally then have a global dictatorship, which is what the, like, basically what all the right-wing tinfoil hat people are saying we live under. So I don't know what the answer is. Is there anything else that we should be aware of, but for some reason it's not mainstream knowledge? I think about this all the time and my, even though I probably haven't talked about it well, my sort of uh, understanding of the impact on environment and people feels fairly strong. But then I was starting to think, well, what am I, what do I not think about day to day? One is air miles and how far a piece of clothing travels. And that makes me feel a little bit queasy inside because a crop might be grown in one country to create fibres which might be produced here and it, it could potentially move to another country to be processed as a fabric and then move to another factory to be processed into a piece of clothing and then flown. Yeah, it just goes on and on and on. And then the global nature is something that I don't actually know how we're going to get around because we don't grow cotton in the UK. Also, the relationship between culture, craft, artisans and how we exploit this in fashion. I was reading about craft in a fashion revolution fanzine, which um, I think everyone should buy because they're quite cheap and they're really brilliantly succinct in terms of the information they give you. But their one on craft talks about how we sort of capture elements of ancient craft from cultures and then bring it into Western fashion without really considering what impact we're having at the same time on that same culture. Um, Appropriation. Exactly. I had to explain to so many people that cultural appropriation isn't oh, but isn't it nice that we're like taking things and celebrating it and i'm like yeah but people are still getting abused on the streets for being not white yeah it's really hard because I, I always found it really hard to know where do you stop with cultural appropriation like in terms of enjoying other cultures and also acknowledging that globalization has just merged so much but then reading this fanzine i was like god there is such a in fashion there's such a clear link between let's say india where india are producing lots of our fashion and yet we're putting indian motifs on clothing or we we do a lot of replication of indian cultural fabrics and patterns and ways of designing things and yet at the same time we're exploiting the people within that country and that's where it became like the, the link and the relationship became really really clear for me taking something from someone's culture commercially benefiting from it in one country whilst exploiting the origin culture at the same time yeah and the only other thing was um 
that I was sort of thinking about was animal welfare. And unless you shop in a vegan way, I think the impact on biodiversity isn't really thought about in fashion a lot of the time. Bang in. Two questions. Firstly, what does Holly do with all her black vests that need to go in the bin? Where should she take them? If you can, cut out bits that you can keep. If you're a... Things, I'm a bit of a tiny bit of a stitcher, so I've got loads of tiny bits of fabric that I've just kept in the one day thinking I might use it to make something creative. Unfortunately, I already have that with... Plastic plastic bricks. (laughs) That I'm turning into eco bricks. But actually, people do that in terms of like turn them into rags to like yeah, yeah. clean stuff with yeah. That's a good old shot. towels are brilliant for rags but if you can't turn it into rags if you can't use it in the home then just take a bag of rags to your charity shop because they do I believe they get money for it as well I think my local charity shop gets £3 a bag of rags so anything which is material based which is um, you can't sell again you just know that on eBay or in a charity shop it's not going anywhere can be recycled that's good still take it to the charity shop where would you recommend going for your organic cotton basics? Google it because there are loads of brands popping up now. There are so many emerging brands who are operating sustainably and producing. I mean, organic cotton basics are easy, easy, easy to find now. So Google it and you'll learn. Um, and affordable. And affordable, yeah. I'm sporting a organic cotton t-shirt, which is £26. Obviously, if you're on extremely low incomes, that is quite a lot for one t-shirt, but it lasts and lasts and lasts. So if you're going to go to Primark and spend 30 quid on four things that won't last, I think it would be better to spend it on one thing that's going to last. That's the attitude that you need to have. I think so, and, oh, yeah. And it's timeless classics. Exactly, yeah. They can style never... up or style down. Yeah. <laughs> I hate saying gonna, that. You're never going to want to get rid of them because they're not a trend. They're just yeah. really beautiful, well-made pieces of clothing. Are there any websites that have a list of, like, boycott, do not boycott? And could you do one if there's... <laughs> there's a, um, an app called Good On You, and they've got a website as well, and they're brilliant, because they rate all our UK brands, I think it's on a sliding scale of five. So you just literally go on the app, the um, search bar is right there on the first page, and you just type in H&M, Zara, whatever, and they'll give you a rating. If you're not ready to give up the high street just yet... That's a way that you can at least pick. Exactly. make an informed choice, yeah. That's sort of what I always say to people about like ethics in general. What annoys me is when people try and argue for what I would consider their laziness or argue for the wall in front of their eyes. Let's all just be honest. Yeah. I'm a vegan. Every day I don't eat meat or dairy. I am contributing to ethics. But I have a car in London. Yeah. So if I drive my car then I'm contributing to the pollution level that my car has. So I'm not pretending that my car isn't a negative on my sliding scale of how low my impact is. It's when we get defensive and go, yeah, well, I need it for this. And it's like, yeah, I know, I'm not, I'm not blaming you. But I'm just pointing out that driving a Hummer is probably not going to be as good for the world as if you took the bus all the time. Yeah. And I just wish we'd all be like... I'm very busy and I don't earn very much and I have four kids so Primark is just a really easy way that's fine I'm not telling you you're a bad person but if I don't go to Primark that's me making an ethical choice thing you're not making it doesn't make you a villain but don't try and make my choices seem less ethical because it makes you feel bad I think that's kind of how I feel about ethics in general we just we don't like to think of ourselves as the bad guys whereas we should all just be like yeah you know I flew around the world but it doesn't make me a bad person yeah it's weird though because being middle class gives you a choice Mm -hmm. and there are people who do not have a choice and have to go and shop at Primark as you just quite rightly pointed out but I just think Maybe that's the next thing. Maybe we need to find a way of 
we, <laughs> we the collective, we of the world, need to find a way of making sustainability in all areas of life accessible to people from uh, lower income households. Well, that is, in my opinion, either dismantle capitalism, which I would love, <laughs> but I, I don't know how I to do I can't believe no one thought of it before. <laughs> yeah. Or use capitalism. And it's how gay people and women got votes and rights. Well, I mean, it was also throwing rocks at police. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but there was a huge amount of like, for example, they went, oh, hold on a second, I should probably stop abusing gay people because they have money. And hold on a second, women buy cars. I should stop doing sexist car ads. So it is happening, slowly, not quickly enough. But it needs to happen quicker. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. So I've just got some final questions that we ask mm. everyone. Right. This is a personal question. Yeah. Um, yeah, but we do ask everyone this. Okay. What's, What's your, your favourite, favourite Disney, Disney movie? movie? Robin Hood. She's the one about it. Uh, I, I did think about it, yeah. <laughs> everyone, kept saying, everyone kept saying Lion King, and I was like, what? Do you know what? Nobody in season one said Lion King, but then everybody who said Lion King didn't know about the new Lion King film, so it must be one of those things that's just in the back of everyone's mind. No one yeah. said Aladdin. Someone no. said Aladdin, because I then went, did you know that Aladdin's back? And they were like, no. <sighs> Weird. Yeah. Robin Hood's quite a good one. So you've got like kind I of badass, Maid Marion was kind of cool, stealing from the rich, good socialist what? message. I think the the legend is probably not very accurate, but I love. I just I've always wanted to be Robin Hood. Yeah. I just thought he was. He was. Him. Yeah, and I, I fancied to, him. Yeah. I wanted to be him, and I wanted to, to be, fox like be him. with him. The yeah. Fox yeah. I'm down with Robin Hood. I can do with that. Uh, when, if ever, do you turn off your activism? Um, this is such a good question. I thought about this one a lot. One. I think activism ultimately is something inside. It's a belief, it's a truth that you hold inside. And unless you do something which is fundamentally against your own truth, it's never off because it's within. And also we all need time where we just stop and be. So I, I find like, I've tried, I don't think I'm a very good activist because I've tr- I've always wanted to like literally change the world in the context of sustainability. And I definitely haven't done that yet. So I haven't quite got to the point of where I want to be in my life in terms of the impact I'm having. But it's exhausting, like trying to change people's opinions, let alone their habits, like it's just knackering. And it can really sap your energy, your life force and etc. Well, really, I think everything's changed since 2016, hasn't it, in terms of like... That was, don't you think that was the beginning of the end, 2016? It just, there was a shift that year, Trump got in... Brexit. Brexit. Well, Brexit was literally like the next day everything was darker and yeah. the views went up. But yeah. it's woken us up. So there's actually been a lot of good stuff that's come yes. out of that. I yeah. don't think Extinction Rebellion would have happened if we weren't yes. all so depressed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's it's like that energy that comes from just sadness and anger is so sapping that actually yeah. it, it can be very difficult to because all of a sudden that's all I talk about my mum's always like and my mum's very politically savvy but she's like god you're just so intense because I don't know how to have a good time anymore because I'm just like yeah didn't the minds predict this on the calendar you know we all thought it's going to be the end of the world and apparently what actually was happening was a shift in consciousness it's the age of Aquarius isn't it as well when did that come Fingers in crossed. Yeah. I, I'm with you on the just like turning it off. Sometimes I, you just I need to watch, it. sit and watch a Disney film and just drink lots of alcohol. <laughs> and, just, and just, yeah, and just, and just let it go that for five amazing. minutes. Yeah. I think it's the concentration 
level of our time. I, yeah. I had the best time the other day when I had loads of stuff that I needed to do, but I was just so stressed that I put on this audiobook that I was listening to, but I couldn't just listen to it. So I started gardening. I've started gardening. And I was gardening, getting rid of all the ivy, doing something really good for myself and for me and for the garden and the planet <laughs> and listening to this book. And it was the perfect combination. At the end, I felt like I'd just done a whole hour of yoga or something. Yeah, so eco-bricking's like that as well. Mm. Eco-bricking's amazing because you sit in front of the TV and you just cut off bits of plastic. And because I'm doing two things at the same time, I'm like... <sighs> Still doesn't sound as sexy as gardening, but yeah. Thank you for all your wisdom and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Have you got a little bit of sunshine to provide us with a happy, positive note? Make us happier. Happy. Uh, <laughs> I think oh, I found this one the hardest one to answer I was like oh god what do I say everything's so awful but it's not we still have time is what I want to say I think there is still time just to change the trajectory that we're on um, I think if we everyone really acts now we will change things and we won't end up in a really dangerous state in terms of um obviously the climate but what impact that's going to have socially i think everything we're talking about now brexit you know nhs welfare all these things will suddenly become either irrelevant or they're going to only be seen in the context of disaster and crisis mitigation because of climate change I think we have to lead the way as well because I think I don't know if it's a very popular view but I, I do think even though we weren't the imperialists and we didn't screw up the world the legacy of our privilege kind of means that actually we are still benefiting from what our ancestors did in the UK so we almost regardless of what they do I think we have to be beacons very unpopular thing to say to make up for what we've done reparations <laughs> yeah I mean ultimately if, if we're not going to give people that we've exploited shitloads of cash then we should at least radically change the way we operate in favour of a world which benefits them as well I've got one thing that I think is a nice I haven't read it yet but I bought a book called Wilding and it's a true story by Isabella Tree which is the best name yeah. for anybody <laughs> yeah. forced to accept that intensive farming of heavy clay soils in their farm in West Sussex oh, uh, so was close. driving it close to bankruptcy so basically their farm Isabella and Charlie was going close to bankruptcy in 2000 because their soils were completely useless they decided to take a leap of faith and hand their three and a half thousand acres back to nature with minimal human intervention and with herds of free roaming animals stimulating new habitats their land is now heaving with life and rare species have come back and biodiversity has rocketed basically it's this book about how giving their desolate farming land back to nature has not only saved the land but like shown us that it's possible to go back on all the mm. damage we've caused and I can't wait to read it. Can, can I, I read that after you? Yes, it you sounds can. right up my street. Something that we can read to make ourselves feel, feel like better. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plugs. plugs, 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 plugs. Holly always tries to make it into a song, this plugs moment, and she's failed every time. You say failed, but it's made the final cut each time because, <laughs> because you're the one that <laughs> What's the website? Uh, givewherelove.com givewherelove.com and that's where as in clothes not as in where (laughs) marvellous you're first Kate Lewis Elliott two L's two T's on Instagram and Twitter yes Um, diversify is on Twitter at diversifypod we are on Instagram at diversifypodcast and you can download us from all of your podcast providers, but you would know that because you're, you're already listening, listening to us. <laughs> tell your friends, tell your 
friends who are vegan to also go organic. <laughs> Tell your parents who are middle class enough to make small changes, to make those small changes. And to stop getting angry when people who are younger than them are angry about things. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. That's a really important point, but it may be irrelevant by the time this podcast comes out, because we might all be dead by then. <laughs> <laughs>